passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing through the book of Genesis. Uh, We'll be in Genesis chapter 45. And uh, as we just prayed, uh, the election is coming up on Tuesday. I'm sure you are ready for the end of uh, the election ads uh, and uh, the season that, that comes with how every single time you turn on the TV, you are bombarded with, a, uh, with an ad for most of the time for who is going to be president. And actually, I heard someone point out that the worst thing about um, the end of daylight savings time is actually we had to have another hour uh, before the election was over. So uh, I, I can resonate with that, certainly, to be sure. Uh, really just want to give another plug uh, for our prayer service uh, tomorrow night, tomorrow at 7 at the Commons. Uh, there should be an address uh, in your bulletin if you don't know where that is. We'd love for, uh, for many of us to be there and uh, for us to, to just spend some time praying uh, for God's will to be done. And I have to be honest, uh, this may not say, say much because of my age, but I can't really recall a time in U.S. history where there's been so much uncertainty over the direction of our nation. There's a ton that d- divides the United States, but I think the prevailing theme of this political season is one of disillusionment. There are some that are completely downright disillusioned over the direction our nation is heading, and this has led to some sort of near-nationalistic fervor to make America great again. This is especially prevalent in in rural communities that have been left behind by the globalization of our economy. On the other side, we have some that are disillusioned with the current state of our nation. They long for greater economic, racial, and gender equality among some areas of concern that are certainly far less noble. And we see, because of this, groundswell of support for a, a politician whose corruption makes a whole lot more sense when you remember that she's from Chicago. This is the season that we live in as Christians. There's uncertainty everywhere. And as the United States becomes more and more post-Christian, all people, but especially Christians, are, are left wondering where does our hope lie? Where can we turn for our hope? And of course, as Christians, we know the answer in our heads. We know the answer is that God is in charge, that God rules, and that God reigns over everything that happens. But even as we profess that, even as we say that we believe that, we can find ourselves subject to the same sort of fear, the same sort of anxiety, the same sort of anger that is seen in so many people who don't know that truth. This morning, Genesis chapter 45 is a passage that talks exactly about that uncertainty. It looks at the uncertainty facing us. And Joseph is is found reflecting on the last 22 years of his life. He's found reflecting on the ups that he's experienced and most of the time the downs that he has experienced. And he shares with his brothers every single thing that he has learned. And I don't think it's an exaggeration for us to say this morning that these 15 verses are the heart of of the Joseph story. These 15 verses that we are going to be looking at this morning are the heart of the Joseph story. They tell us the purpose of everything that has happened in Joseph's life. As Joseph is looking back at his life, he can now say with confidence, this is how God was at work. 
And for us this morning, as we look at this passage, as we look at Genesis 45, I think that we can say the same thing. We can look at the uncertainty surrounding us. We can look at the cultural disillusionment that is everywhere that we turn. And like Joseph, we can say this is how God is at work. I invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 45. Um, and, and as we approach this text, I think it's just appropriate for us to pray one more time. So please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you for the example he sets for us. We thank you for the example of repentance that his brothers set for us. But even more than just looking at them as an example, God, we pray that we would look at them and see the truth of how you were at work in our lives. That you are, how you were at work in the lives of our, our nation and our leaders. And God, that we would walk away with a confidence of your sovereignty, a confidence in the fact that you reign and that you rule. That's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, uh, we're in Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45 is a continuation of Genesis 43 and 44, which we looked at last week. As we looked at 43 and 44, we saw that this was Joseph testing his brothers. He was testing his brothers to see if they had really, actually, truly changed. They they seemed to uh, confess that they had changed, but, but Joseph wants to see if they've actually changed. He had forgiven his brothers years before this. But if there was any hope of restoration of their relationship, if there was any hope of reconciliation, he would need to see a change in them in order to trust them again. And I think that's a good reminder from last week. Forgiveness can be a one-person job. Forgiveness can be a one-person job, but for reconciliation to occur, it must take two people at work. We must see evidence of change in someone who has hurt us in order for reconciliation to occur. And Genesis 44 gives us evidence of that in Joseph's brother's lives. The chapter ends with Judah, who the one who had suggested 20 years earlier, who had suggested selling Joseph into slavery, steps forward and offers himself in the place of his brother Benjamin. He offers his life as an exchange for Benjamin's life. And what we saw last week is this is just a a forerunner of Judah's descendant one day, Jesus, who offers himself in our place to reconcile us to God. As we pick up in, in chapter 45, we see how Joseph responds. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along, starting in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer, for they were dismayed at his presence. These first three verses really give us or or tell us of two revelations that take place uh, in in Joseph's life and in his brother's life. We're going to look at both of these revelations because they're both important for us this morning. The first one is this. We see first a revelation 
of the brother's transformation, a revelation of the brother's transformation. Genesis chapter 44 shows that the brothers have indeed been transformed. Judah, he takes his brother's place, takes Benjamin's place, or at least that's what he wants to do. And Joseph is overcome with emotion. And just imagine, just imagine how Joseph felt 22 years earlier, that same brother who now offered himself as a substitute, that same brother had thrown him in a pit, had spit on him, had mocked him, who turned a deaf ear to his cries for mercy and ultimately was the one who sold him into slavery. How Joseph must have longed to hear these words. How Joseph must have longed to hear Judah or a number of his other brothers Say, I will take your place. As Judah, as Joseph was brought to Egypt, shackled, as he was whipped, as he was driven all the way to Egypt, hot tears stung his face because no brother had substituted themselves for him. In fact, his brothers were the reason why he faced the worst future imaginable. But then we get to Genesis 44. In the very end, we see Judah's words and Joseph's response should be an encouragement for us. It's an encouragement because it reminds us that no relationship is too far gone. God is a God of miracles. And those miracles are far more important, far more weighty, far more significant than the Cubs winning the World Series. This is a God who works miracles, that there is no such thing as a broken relationship that is too far gone for God's grace. That those who have hurt you, that those who have caused you pain, all of them can change as long as there is breath still in their lungs. That's what the revelation of Judah's transformation, what the brother's transformation teaches us. It was indeed a miracle. And in our own lives, we should also pray to that same end. So that's the first revelation, this revelation of the brother's transformation. The second one is this, a revelation of who Joseph is. We see a revelation of who Joseph is. Joseph sends out all of the servants that are surrounding him so he can at last finally reveal to his brothers just exactly who he is. And he says, I am Joseph. And whereas the first revelation, this revelation of the brother's transformation is a good thing, the brothers don't see this as a good thing, at least not at first. The text tells us that they are dismayed. And you might be saying, why are they dismayed at this revelation of who this man is? Perhaps the the revelation of who Joseph was sparks nightmares of revenge that is coming their way because of what they had done to him. After all, that's probably how they would have responded in the past. And that's probably part of their dismay. Part of their dismay might have been caused by the fact that they realized this was a test. All of this had been a test. The trips to Canaan, the trip to get back to Canaan with their brother Benjamin, the the locking Simeon in prison, the, the silver being returned to them, the cup being stored in their bags. All of this was a test. 
And honestly, the brothers hadn't done all of that good in responding to this test. And so they were dismayed. But I think the primary reason for this dismay from the brothers is because their sin had finally been exposed. Their sin had been laid bare for everyone to see all of the things that they had done. In the previous chapter, what we see is this vague confession of their guilt. They say that God has finally brought their guilt upon them because he has realized that. But if they don't go into details of that. The first time that they came to Egypt, they said that they were honest men. But now their sin is exposed. All of, this, all of these attempts to paint themselves in the best light possible, all of that is all for naught. And I think that that's the way things often happen when we try to hide our sin. We oftentimes try to hide our sin. We want it to remain hidden. But when it comes to light, we feel dismayed, just like the brothers do here. Jesus, when he was walking on the earth, said this to a man named Nicodemus, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. We just like the brothers, oftentimes prefer darkness, at least in parts of our lives. We don't want all of our lives being exposed so everyone can see it. We want to keep parts of our lives in the darkness. And in one sense, in a very real sense, we're like cockroaches. When the light gets turned on, we scatter into the darkness. We don't like the light penetrating every area of our lives because so often we love the darkness. And I think that's why the brothers despair here they had presented this image of a respectable group of people that they were honest men and all of that projecting was for nothing only 11 men knew how wicked they really were the 10 brothers who sold joseph into slavery benjamin was not one of them and joseph only 11 men knew how wicked they were and joseph was that 11th who stood right before them and exposed their sin. They were embarrassed and they were dismayed by the revelation of their sin. And I think it's appropriate for us to just pause and to ask, is there sin in our lives that we are keeping hidden? Is there sin in our lives that we don't like the light shining on? That we do indeed love the darkness. And are we willing to repent? Are we willing to confess before God brings it to light? If there is one thing that this election season has taught us, that nothing remains hidden anymore, whether that's lewd comments or whether that's illegal email usage, nothing remains hidden. Our love for the darkness cannot hide everything facing us. And so we should repent of our sin before it is revealed. And we find ourselves dismayed just like the brothers. You see, Joseph finds his brothers in shock. He sees how shocked they are of what has happened and what uh, what has just transpired. And so he he tries to uh, assure them of the fact that he has forgiven them. Pick up in in verse 4. We're actually going to read 4 through 15 here, what Joseph says to his brothers. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, 
whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And to keep you alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all, the, all my honor in Egypt and all of that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his, Benjam- his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Joseph makes it very clear to his brothers that there is no danger that is facing them. That the threat of revenge is non-existent, uh, existent, that he has forgiven them. And you might, you might wonder, well, why? I know that, that I can look at this and I can say, well, why doesn't he want revenge at this moment? Well, the thing is that Joseph has gained perspective over the past 22 years. Notice what Joseph is saying here. He still recognizes that his brothers are responsible for what they have done. Notice in verse 4, it says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So Joseph just goes ahead and he names it. It's, it's the elephant in the room. He says, listen, we're just going to get this out here. You sold me into Egypt. Joseph is here because of what they had done. He says it again in verse 5. He says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. The reason Joseph is in Egypt is because of his brothers. Joseph did not go on a vacation And just never came back. Joseph did not apply for a job in Egypt and have to relocate to Egypt. He went to check on his brothers 22 years earlier while they were pasturing their father's flocks in Dothan. And he was abused. And he was sold into slavery. Joseph may have forgiven his brothers, but he goes ahead and just says it like it is. They are responsible for what has happened. But at the same time that Joseph says that, at the same time that Joseph recognizes the human responsibility here, he also recognizes that God is the one who is ultimately in charge. He recognizes human responsibility and he recognizes divine sovereignty. He may mention twice that his brothers have sold him into slavery, but he mentions four times that God is the one who has been at work. Let's look at these four occurrences. The first one is this. God sent me before you to preserve life, found in verse 5. God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph's brothers may have sold him into slavery. Joseph's brothers may have been the ones who 
are responsible for what had happened to him, but God is the one who sent him to Egypt. Notice what Joseph is not saying here. He's not saying, you sold me and screwed up God's plan. Thankfully, God swept in and he fixed it at the last minute. He had to get creative, but God took care of it. God wanted me to go to Egypt, but he had a limo and a police escort waiting for me. You got in the way, and so God had to resort to plan B. Plan B involved slavery. Plan B involved imprisonments. And yet God took what you did, and he somehow fixed it. Joseph doesn't say that. Joseph doesn't say that they screwed up God's plan. Joseph says that while the brothers are responsible for what has happened, God is the one who sent him. And God sent him through the trials, not in spite of the trials. And just a question for you this morning, is that true of you as well? Perhaps you've been wronged greatly. Perhaps your family has betrayed you just like Joseph. Perhaps you still bear the wounds of those that you once trusted. Or perhaps it's a a bout with sickness or cancer that you didn't ask for, that you didn't deserve. This truth remains. God works through trials, not in spite of them. God was not caught off guard when you were diagnosed with cancer. He was, not diag- he was not caught off guard when you were betrayed or taken advantage of by your family. Every plan for evil that was coming your way, God knew about. And we can hold fast to that truth. That God works through trials, not in spite of them. That's the first mention of God being at work here. The second one is this. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant. It's found in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant. The many ways that Joseph grew while he was a slave and while he was in prison, that this gaining of perspective was certainly a part of the way he grew. As long as he could remember... Joseph had been told by his dad about this promise that had been made to his great-grandfather, Abraham. This was a promise from God, and he had heard all about how God had promised his family a lot of good things. He, He could see now how God had promised his family a special relationship. He could see that God had promised his family many offspring. How God had promised that his family would be wealthy and would be a blessing to all nations. That his family would have a great name. And now, as he stood, because of time, because of distance, and even because of his suffering and the famine, Joseph could see how God was at work. He could see how God had sent him before his family in order to keep that promise. Maybe you can't fathom today what God is doing in the mess of your life. You can't understand what on earth God is doing. Just a suggestion for you. Perhaps you don't have the right perspective. 
Perhaps you don't have the right perspective. And don't get me wrong, perspective is hard. It took Joseph over 20 years of suffering and then finally seeing how he had been exalted to a position of leadership in Egypt for him to finally understand what God was doing. Perspective is hard. And for many of us, we might not able we not might not be able to ever fully gain perspective about our suffering until we stand before God. That's just the reality. We might not know, ever know the answer to the question, why is God allowing me or my family to go through this? But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to look at these things from an eternal perspective. That we shouldn't seek to understand. Even though we might not understand fully, to understand just a little bit of a sliver that it's possible God is doing something that we cannot see. It is possible that God is doing something that we can't see. It is possible that God has a plan that we don't understand. It is possible that God is using this pain in a way that doesn't make sense to us today. And we must remind ourselves of God's plan. So saturate yourself in scripture. Cling to the promises that God gives to his people throughout the Bible. One of the best ways for us to gain perspective is to look at things through the lens of the Bible. It's vital for us as we seek to endure through trials to gain this eternal perspective. Third time that God is mentioned is when Joseph says this, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse eight. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Here's the fascinating thing about this passage. Joseph mentions multiple times that his brothers have sold him and yet God sent him. Think back to 20 years ago when his brothers sell him into slavery. They don't really care what happens to Joseph. They just want him out of the picture. It doesn't matter to him if they, uh, if he go, it doesn't matter to them if he goes southwest to Egypt or northwest to Europe. They're not caring about where he's going when they sell him to these merchants. But God is thinking about it. God cares. God does not send Joseph to Europe or to Iraq, or to Iran. He sends him to Egypt because God had a plan and it would not be thwarted. And the same is true in your life. Friends, it is very encouraging to realize that not one millisecond of the pain that you experience, the trials that you face, not one millisecond of that is meaningless. God never says to his people, I know how I can use the first, the second, and the third chemo treatments, but I just can't figure out how I'm going to use that fourth treatment. God never says, I know how to use them running low on money. I know how to use them not being able to pay their hospital bills, but I can't for the life of me figure out how to use the stress this causes in their marriage. Every ounce of pain and hurt and stress that we face is a part of God's plan. We may not know how God is going to use it. 
We may not know what God is doing, but we can be confident that God is at work. And the fourth mention of God at work here is when Joseph says this, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. This is found in verse 9. Joseph sends his brothers back to Canaan. And he says, you know what you need to do? You need to tell dad that God has made me Lord of all Egypt. God has a plan. God has a plan that goes just beyond Jacob's family. He has a plan for all of Egypt. He has a plan for the entire known world. If God only wanted to preserve Jacob's family, if God had a famine coming and all he wants to do is just preserve Jacob's family, then all of this is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. All that God really had to do was to lead this family into the desert, find an oasis for seven years. He'd led this family countless times before. Why not do it again? Hundreds of years after this, we see that God provides manna for millions of Jacob's descendants. For 40 years, bread rains from heaven. If God is only concerned with the preservation of Jacob's family, why doesn't he just do it a couple hundred years earlier? It's because God had a plan for the entire world, to save the entire world. Is it possible? Is it possible that God is using your pain, God is using your hardship for the good of others? Is it possible that God is using it so you can show your children how to faithfully follow God in the midst of hardship? There's a book, I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, it's by a Christian music a musician named Michael Card. And it's called The Walk, and he, and he describes in this book his relationship with his mentor, uh, who was a professor of this college that he attended. And, and this man uh, taught him and walked with him on, on so many different areas. And at one point in the book, he says that his mentor, his name was Bill Lane, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And when he told Michael Card about his diagnosis with cancer, what he said as Michael Card is just breaking down about what is about to happen to his friend and to his mentor, to this man that's closer to them than his own father, William Lane said this, I've shown you how a Christian lives, now I'm going to show you how a Christian dies. I've shown you how a Christian lives, now I'm going to show you how a Christian dies. Is it possible that God is giving you hardship so that you can serve and as example to your children and to those who are around you? If you've struggled with infertility, if you've struggled with miscarriages, is it possible that God has given you that pain so that you can help those who go through it right now? Is it possible that you have lost your job so that you can be a voice of encouragement to those who are in the midst of work conflict right now? Is it possible that God could have brought your family in the midst of financial insecurity so that way you can be a blessing to those who are going through it right now? Our sufferings and our hardships are so much, so much bigger than us. And God allows us, God wants to use us in a way to bless others no matter what comes our way. God has a plan that's bigger than than you and me. You see, as we look at this passage, 
we see that God is completely and utterly sovereign. He's completely and utterly in charge. Joseph realizes that while he is in Egypt, and he makes that clear to his brother that, brothers that God is in charge. And as we look at this passage, I think there are just three areas of God's sovereignty, of God's rule that are made abundantly clear in the lives of Jacob and his family in Genesis 45. So let's look at these three areas. The first one is this. God is sovereign locally. God is sovereign locally. Or in other words, God is sovereign over your personal life. Everything that comes your way, God is the one who is in control. Take a look at verse 5 once again. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here for God has sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph had learned that God's throne is above his life and his throne is above the lives of his family. God had sent Joseph to Egypt in the midst of suffering, in the midst of slavery, in the midst of imprisonment in order to preserve his family's life. Friends, God's sovereignty is very, very personal. And that is a source of hope for us in the midst of a loss of a job, or the loss of a family member. It is a source of hope for us when we are bullied at school or when we have our hearts broken by a spouse. Genesis 45 reminds us that God is in charge. That God is in charge of every single pain and hurt And also every single good thing that comes our way. Because God loves us. God is in charge. God is sovereign locally. Second truth that we see from this passage is that God is not just sovereign locally, but he's sovereign globally. God is sovereign globally. No matter what faces our nation come Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, no matter what faces our nation, whether it's good or bad, whether it's, it's a bright future or a dim future, and both of those are very possible, God remains on his throne. God remains on his throne. Take a look again at verse 9. Joseph says this, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. Remember what we said earlier, if God had a plan just to save Jacob and his family, all of this was unnecessary. But God is sovereign over all humanity, not just Abraham, not just Isaac, not just Jacob, not just their family, not just the church. God is in charge. God is sovereign over all humanity. And while he is in Egypt, Joseph endures untold suffering. But all of that has a purpose. So that one day he could ascend to the leadership of Egypt and God could save the entire known world from this famine because God is sovereign globally. Friends, God is in charge of global affairs. No matter who is elected on Tuesday, whether that is Mr. Trump or Mrs. Clinton, part of God's sovereign plan is to take care of his church. This is a part of God's sovereign plan. If Mr. Trump is elected. Whatever your positions are, it's not as if God is no longer in charge. As Mrs. Clinton is elected, it's not as if God no longer sits on his throne. Nothing's going to catch God off guard. You see, perhaps God's plan involves prosperity. Perhaps it involves blessing for the 
uh, uh, people of America, like it has been for much of the American experience, and perhaps God's plan for the United States means the waning of the greatness of America, just like the waning of the Roman Empire, just like the waning of the British Empire, of the French Empire, and countless other empires before us. God is in control. And he does not abdicate responsibility for the direction of our nation or of any other nation. Christians should certainly be involved in the political process. But while we may be the ones who elect the president, God is the one who chooses the president. Daniel chapter 2 says this. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Friends, God is sovereign globally. And the third sphere that we see of God's sovereignty here is this. God is sovereign over salvation history. God is sovereign over salvation history. Take a look at verse 7. Such an important verse. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. God's plan to save Jacob's family is ultimately bigger than Jacob's family. It is bigger because God ultimately is going to bring about everlasting salvation for all of humanity through the preservation of Jacob's family. 200 years before Joseph's words here in Genesis chapter 45, God calls Abraham to follow him. And he promises that if Abraham follows, that Abraham will be a blessing to all the nations, that he will have a special relationship with God. And God has a plan to save the world through this family. This goes back to Genesis chapter 3, this promise that is given to the serpent in the garden moments after humanity rebels against God. And God says there is a day coming where all things will be made right because this enmity, this animosity between the serpent and humanity will be brought to a head when an offspring of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. There is salvation coming you see as we follow genesis we've seen this plan this promise it's been endangered by a number of different things from within and from without it's been endangered by uh, when lot was kidnapped by mesopotamian kings and abraham had to go after him it was endangered when isaac allowed his wife rebecca to be brought into abimelech's harem it was uh, endangered from within when Abraham sleeps with Hagar. It was endangered from within when Joseph and his brothers are nearly torn apart because of the favoritism of their family. And here we see another threat facing this family, another threat facing this promise of future redemption, of future salvation, and that is this famine. But friends, God has a plan. And God has a promise that he will keep to Abraham, that he will keep to Isaac, that he will keep to Jacob, and that he will keep to all humanity. And so he sends Joseph to Egypt. This language of remnant that's used here in this verse is, is significant language in the Bible. It's used in Genesis 6 to talk about the remnants, that is Noah and his family after the flood. It's used 1,500 years after the time of Joseph to refer to the people of God who have been preserved while in exile to Babylon and return back to the promised land. And today it is used for the church. 
for those who hold fast to God in the midst of uncertain times. God is sovereign over salvation history. And that's what, that's what Genesis chapter 45 is teaching us. If you were to sum it up in just one phrase, I think it would be this. God uses the sin of humanity to save humanity. God uses the sin of humanity to save humanity. That's, that's a paradox there. But, but in Joseph's life, God uses the sin of Joseph's brothers in order to save the whole world from a famine. How much more true is that at the cross? That God uses the sin of the Jewish people. God uses the sin of the Roman people to bring about salvation for all humanity. It is at the cross that we see the clearest intersection of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. One pastor from the 1800s was once famously asked, how do you reconcile this idea of divine sovereignty with human responsibility? It seems like they're at odds. And he simply just replied, you never need to reconcile friends. These two doctrines are not opposed because the cross cannot make sense without both of them. The cross makes no sense without human responsibility because then there is no need for a punishment against sin. The cross makes no sense and holds no power without the sovereignty of God because without God's plan, the cross is just a cosmic accident. If God's sovereignty means that he can use the sin of humanity to save humanity in the time of Joseph, If God's sovereignty means that God can use the sin of humanity to save humanity at the cross. And the question for us this morning, is it possible? Do you think that God can be at work during your life? That God could be at work in the midst of this election? Do we have radical confidence in God's sovereignty, that everything that comes toward us, whether it is good or bad, it is seen in light of God's reign over our lives, over our nation, and over salvation history. That's the truth of God's sovereignty for us, that every sphere of our lives, God remains on his throne. And this should give us assurance that God has a plan no matter what comes our way, whether it is sickness or a bad president, whether it is depression or a failing economy, God sits on his throne. And as Christians, we can trust in that. We can rely on that, that God is doing everything to further his kingdom in our lives. And God is doing everything to further his kingdom in the lives of our nation. So let us trust in this God who is sovereign. Let us trust in this God who has a plan. Let us trust in this God who remains seated on his throne no matter who is seated in the Oval Office. And let us be confident. Let us be confident in the sovereignty of God and in the midst of these uncertain times. Let us trust in the solid rock. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are in charge.
that you rule. That your sovereignty does not depend upon an election. It does not depend on us living in a certain way in our own lives, but it is only because you are who you are. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to see that, help us to trust in you in the midst of our hardships, in the midst of the uncertainty facing us. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.